Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is coping and surviving after the deaths of two children. And our guest is Elaine E. Stilwell, wife, mother, educator, author, and lecturer. In 1986, following the deaths of her two oldest children, 21-year-old Dennis and 19-year-old Peggy, Elaine and her husband Joe founded the Compassionate Friends of Rockville Center, New York, where they continue as chapter leaders today. Elaine has shared her gifts of caring and humor at workshops, seminars, and on radio and television. She also writes magazine articles, pamphlets, books, and has a column in Grief Digest. Since 1998, she has been bereavement coordinator for 134 parishes in the Diocese of Rockville Center. The Death of a Child, ACTA Publications, is her latest book. Welcome to the show, Elaine. Why, thank you. Hi, Elaine. It's great to have you on the show, and what a wonderful book you've written. Thanks a lot. Uh, so much excellent, wonderful information, and uh, it, it's really uh, very a very good book. Well, you know what was interesting when the publisher asked me to write it? He wanted the story of everybody. He wanted me to write we, not just my life story, and I think that was the golden part of the book, that it shared so many stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the, the way people survived and the things that they did, because we're always looking for things that will help us, and we never think of all the many uh, ways that there are, and we all grieve differently and we learn from each other. Absolutely. Well, could you just talk a little bit about your story to begin the show for our audience? Okay. Um, I'm the mother of three children, and my two oldest were home from college for the summer and had summer jobs, and my youngest a daughter uh, had just graduated from a high school. Mm-hmm. So the joke was that the honeymoon was going to begin in September when everybody was away at college. But unfortunately, that never happened. Um, my two oldest, Peggy and Dennis, went out to a concert at our local Jones Beach. It's a rainy, kind of funny night, but the show goes on. And uh, on the way home, coming over a drawbridge, they hit an open drawbridge. Oh. And um, we were called... Uh, we were only 10 minutes from home, too. Mm-hmm. We were called uh, to come to the hospital telling us that our son had been injured. And, you know, he drove that uh, road every day. He was a lifeguard at the time. Mm-hmm. And we just knew he was a good driver, and, he, you know, he knew the road. And he must have been quite a guy, too, because it's not easy to get a job lifeguarding. No, he was big, six-foot-three hunk, you know. And yeah. uh, I just thought, oh, broken arm, broken leg. I really didn't panic. It was 3 o'clock in the morning when we got to the uh, hospital, and it was only a few minutes away. And uh, they were preparing him for brain surgery. He looked wonderful. He just a couple of scratches, but he had a bump on the head. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, gee, I wonder where Peggy is. But you know how kids, uh, you know, separate and she'll go off with her friends and he'll go off with his. And he was, like, coming home because he had to go to work the next day. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the doctor just looked at me and he said, uh, Peggy's back at the scene of the accident. And I said, oh, good old Peggy. She's minding his car, his pride and right. joy. And uh, the doctor looked at me, and he said, you don't get it. He said, she didn't make it. Oh, my God. And we had no idea that Peggy had died. Uh. They had, she didn't really have any identification on her, so they were afraid to tell us that over the telephone until we, they realized who was with him. They didn't know who it was in the car. But anyway, um, we prepared uh, Dennis. We said goodbye as he went up to brain surgery, and we went to identify Peggy at the morgue, and it was Peggy. 
And then for the next four days, we ran between the funeral parlor and uh, the hospital, the intensive care unit. After the brain surgery, they said it would take a couple of days to see if everything worked out, but he never became conscious again. And um, we honestly felt that he was going to make it. We had all our hopes on that. Well, it and sounds like he looked physically fine. Yeah, he and did. That was the surprise. Was he unconscious? He was unconscious the whole time. And, and he the, looked fine. Yeah, and the day after we buried Peggy, we had her funeral, prepared that whole thing, and the day after we buried her, the doctors told us that Dennis was brain dead. Mm-hmm. So that began the journey of another funeral. So we actually had two funerals in one week and prepared all the different um, favorite things for each one. And it was amazing, you know, when you think back how uh, I think one of the one of the nice things, if you could say it's nice, was that each one had a funeral uh, just focusing on that person rather than putting them together because they were both different. Right. right. So that, it kind of shook up our community. They were very active. We lived here all our life. And, of course, the lifeguards were the... Uh, um, the pole bearers and all, and they were in shock because well, those kids that age, 21, they think uh, they're invincible. Yeah, especially the lifeguards. They're yeah, saving yeah. other people. Yeah. So that began our journey, and I can still remember my very first lesson. We had caretakers here, relatives and friends, staying with us the whole week, and you know how they prepare all the food, and they lay out your clothes, and they drive you here and there. I mean, we were really like robots. And uh, at 5 o'clock, we had everyone back to our house after both funerals for a luncheon, and 65 people left, including all the people that had stayed here all week. And at 5 o'clock at night, my husband and I sat in the living room, and we looked at each other like, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. And you will never forget that empty feeling. So that's when kind of the reality started to sink in. Well, it was an awful reality because you don't even know how you're going to get up yeah. the next day. Now, was Annie there? Annie was with us, yes. Yeah. And, of course, um, as I, when I mentioned that we were sitting there alone, she had gone out with a couple of friends, and you know how they have to have each other? Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing to know that little people, you know, youngsters, can grieve in a different way, but because we didn't know anything at that point, right. but uh, for shorter periods of time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, were, uh, were you scared? Do you remember being scared about where she was or anything? No, I don't think I even got to that. But you know, it's okay. funny because she was supposed to go to college to start as a freshman, uh, two hundred miles away, in about three weeks, and everybody said to us, "Don't let her go." And I was, I couldn't believe that because. They wanted me to put a butterfly net over her, you know, keep her safe, you know. Mm-hmm. And we said to Annie, it's your dream, you know, what would you like to do? You're more than welcome to stay at home and go locally, but we want you to, you know, choose. And she chose to go, and I thought, I'll never forget the day my husband and, dro- and I drove her down to Maryland. She went to Loyola College, and I can still see waving goodbye, leaving her standing there, and we're just crying our eyes out because there was another person leaving our house. Right. And how she made it through. She she graduated on time and finished all her classes. She became a social worker. Wow. But, mm-hmm. but we wow. told her she was statistically untouchable, and that became a family joke. Uh, I know you taught third grade, right? Yeah, right. I can't help but think as an educator you would have you were very wise and were able to give her some support that some families have difficulty with. You were Definitely. able to give her permission yeah. to go away to school. Uh, being an educator, you know, and understanding that importance. I uh, One of the things, you know, Heidi and I present at the uh, National Compassionate Friends Conferences often, and, and we'll do a group of siblings, and they'll talk about the debate about whether to go to college or not, whether they can leave, right? Right. right. Because sometimes kids feel responsible, and, you know, you feel responsible for helping your parents through it and for 
making sure they're okay. And if you're if you're gone, you're not able to check in and make sure they're okay. Well, I I felt sorry for her going off to a brand new place with not a single friend in tow right. and going to all new people. Mm-hmm. No one knew her story, and she wasn't about to advertise it. Absolutely. And I didn't know whether she could handle that, but she did. Thank God, uh, she was able to manage all like that. But now, you know what? We didn't have um, computers at the time. That, that was uh, 1986. And I wrote a letter to her every day. There was a letter in her mailbox. And, uh, I mean, I'd love to have had email, but I made sure there was something there for her so that she did not feel all by herself. That's great. Uh, you are such a wise person. Where did you get all this wisdom from then? Well, uh, did you had past things happen that made you be able to know that? I think I was a much worse parent. Well, you know, I think some things I did from instinct, but um, like just doing the funerals because that's really such an important thing and just picking out their favorite songs and having their favorite people be part of the ceremony, that was very soothing to me. But right after that, I ran to the public library. I wanted to know, I wanted to find a book that told me that I was going to make it, that somebody else made it. And they only had like six books on the shelf. Yeah. And no matter where you went, you know, bookstores and the library, you'd have to ask someone. And that was the hardest thing to say, where are the grief books? Because they hid them. They were on the bottom shelf under the war stories and things. Nobody ever put grief in a place where you could find it. And now when you go to the public library, there's like a 100 books there. And I tell everybody, just walk yourself to 155.937. It's the same in every library. And find those books. <laughs> I love you know? that. What is it again? 155.937. <laughs> and it's the same in the children's section. Right. And there's mandated books there for for parents helping little children and, you know, loss of grandpa and everything. People don't even know that because they don't have to go and buy everything. Everything Absolutely. And Compassionate family. Friends has a library. Uh, you, right. If you find an, um, oh chapter in your area. Oh, definitely. You know, um, that's how I found Compassionate Friends. The six books that I read in the back of the book, they mentioned places where you can get help. And I said, what is this Compassionate Friends? I never heard of it before. And uh, we wrote to them and asked if we could start something here because there was nothing in our area. And could you believe that we started this group 15 months into our grief and we were as uh, dopey as the other people that came in. I mean, it was the blind leading the blind. We filled up every chair in the classroom, 36 seats, the very first meeting that we had. The second meeting was 50, then 75. We went up to how, did, how did you reach people? You reached them through the main headquarters? How did you... um, basically, there was a, le- uh, a little article in the local paper, mm-hmm. and from that it was word of mouth, and it has not stopped. And we've had four or five other chapters branch off from ours so that now there are more places that people can go to here on Long Island. And some people like to go to a meeting once a week, which is wonderful. You know, well, they can... and, I, and I like it that it was the blind leading the blind, because then you can go in and be real and say, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. How is everyone else feeling? Does anyone have any advice for me? Well, we listened to the tapes that they had available at the national headquarters from TCF. Right. And, and by the way, people can get uh, get in touch with the national headquarters mm-hmm. if they want to start a group. I think it's 18 months that they ask now. Yes, they do. They and do. Uh, But it's certainly uh, a great testimonial. Well, Elaine, I wanted to ask you uh, one thing. You talk in your book about how hard uh, the work of grief is, and uh, could you talk a little bit about that and activities of daily living, how, what you did and what you would recommend to others? Well, I'll tell you, when I started out, I had no idea how long grief is. You know, a grieving is not a short-term process. I mean, you learn this. I, I think grief is an education. It's not even a long-term process, but it's a lifelong process. And that's that's a hard thing to grasp. 
Mm. Uh, but you go day by day, and I think I, I have to thank my lucky stars that um, my children died in August because I made a point to get back to school teaching third grade. If you're not there when the school opens in September, you lose your class. You can't set down the rules. You know, somebody else is taking your class. Right. So if my kids had died in December or something, I don't know when I would have gone back to teaching. But I was kind of like, it, it was it was very helpful for me to have that structure and to have the children, um, you know, they needed you. I was busy. I came home, I was exhausted at the end of the day, and I would just sit down in my chair and I would cry for a whole hour from 4 to 5 o'clock. It gave you a break from your grief to go to work. Right. And then I made an appointment with my grief at 4 o'clock. <laughs> that's an interesting comment, making an, an appointment with your grief. I like that. And, you know, that, that they, limits on it. they tell you that in all the books, you know, to cut out a little time for yourself. But I didn't even know that at the time. I just had to sit down and let those tears come down. Absolutely. And, you know, that was such a release. And it was wonderful because, you know, I, I, I wasn't told stop crying. You know, I, my husband was just wonderful. <laughs> he was my blotter. And, and, Elaine, I have a question for you about losing two children. Yeah. When you grieve the loss of two children, I mean, I had a brother that died, but I didn't have two right. brothers that died. Do you, did you grieve for them both at the same time? No. In fact, I would say I'd be, I'd be crying and I'd say, well, who am I crying for today? Okay. It was very hard to figure which one you were crying for. Mm-hmm. And the, I have to say that um, having two die, it was, it's different because I felt that they were together. They were always together. And that was a comfort to me that they were with each other. And Dennis's roommate said to me, Dennis chose to escort Peggy to heaven. Um, and that was just such a mind-blowing, beautiful thought for me. Like that. And, you know, if that's another thing you learn, make, you know, positive thoughts. If I got up every day and said I'm never going to see my children again. Or I, how could I have lost two? This is not possible. Yeah, I would, this, I would be, sick to, my, to, me and, I'd be yeah. sick to my stomach. But if I say I'm one day closer to seeing them, you're, you have kind of a joy in your heart. So you find, I, I looked for positive uh things that would help me along. Right. And, and uh, when my brother died, he died with my cousin. They died together also. And uh-huh. I think that was very comforting, at least to me, to know that Matthew and Scott were together also. Right. And that we felt like they, you know, left It's something together. you tell your head, you right. know. Right. You're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Now, you also talk in the book about motivation. How did oh. you get the motivation to go on? Well, I can remember the very first day I went into their room to start, you know, closing out some of the things in their bureau drawers and desks and so on. And just opening that after they died? Oh, it was in the first week or so when I went into the room just to look through their wallets and stuff, you know. And as I was going to throw out the ID cards and the library card and the driver's license, I stopped. And I said, I don't want to erase them. And it was just that feeling like I've got to find a way to keep their memories alive. I didn't have a clue what that was going to be, never dreaming what was ahead of me. But that was one of the motivating factors to get out of bed in the morning, to know that you did not want your child erased. And you also, I found out I didn't want all that love I had for them to be lost. I wanted to put it into something. And I wanted them to be proud of me. I didn't want them to look down from heaven and say, won't she get out from under the covers, (laughs) you know? So those were the three motivating factors that moved me. And as I, um, I've always loved to write. So I would be writing things about what I learned, and then I would share them with other people. I'd ask for a copy, and that got me into sharing all the different things that I learned along the way. And, you know, you send it to Bereavement Magazine, to Grief Digest, and so on. And that was the beginning of people asking me to come and speak. And, you know, it's just amazing the path that opens up to you. 
sharing what you've learned, and that's all I've done. Of course, yeah, of course, how were you the first week or two? or you know? uh, The first week or two, I think I was a robot. I I think I got up, you know, my the way I was brought up was you do what you have to do and then you can fall down. I guess that philosophy helped me because I didn't give in to just, I, got, I can't get out of bed, you know. And, uh, I mean, that's all right if you have to do that, but I was I was born a different way. And um, I would go, you know, do my work, do my housework and everything, and then if I just had to fall down, I would fall down. But I I remember just being exhausted. I don't think I ever felt anything like that before. And I was always a busy person, but to just be dragging, to, to know that it takes ten times about the energy to get through a day, that was hard. Right. And I couldn't go out in, you know, after school to do errands or anything. I would be crying wherever I was. I remember the plumber telling me to go pick out a faucet at the store, and I went and I looked at the wall of faucets, and I stood there and cried. The ladies, I mean, how many people do you see crying in the plumbing store? You know? But it was right. just because I couldn't make a decision. I couldn't do something. Right. Those early days are tough. Yeah. Uh, well, um, Elaine, uh, I just wanted to mention your book uh, again as we start this segment because it's such a wonderful book, The Death of a Child, Reflections of a Grieving Parent. And how can they get this? They can get it through Amazon, I assume? Hey, oh, yeah. Amazon.com has it, and Active Publications in Chicago carries it. I would definitely uh, recommend that you get this book. Now, Heidi, when we went on a break, you had a question that you wanted to ask Elaine? Yeah, I just wanted to know, um, Elaine, what do you know now that you wish you had known at the time of your children's death? Well, I no one ever told me that talking was the best medicine. I had to learn that, I guess, by reading. But thank God I was a talker because no matter who sat next to me in the airplane, on the uh, grocery line, at the bank line, I told them about my story about Peggy and Dennis and never realizing that that was something that really made it become more real to you. Mm-hmm. And um, I know um, I, I loved uh, Victor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, who uh, people asked, how did you ever live through all that? And he said, you have to have a goal. And they asked him what his goal was, and he said to tell the world. And I tell everybody, oh, there, he backed me up. You know, you got to have a goal. He wants... I love I love him. And he says, yeah. he, and you... he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Right. You yeah. don't want your loved one um, yeah. to not be remembered. So I say tell the world, and whether it's writing about them or writing to them or talking about them, but that's the phrase I use, telling the world. Yeah, and and, I, and it helps you deal with uh, those confusions, the anger. Oh yeah, all those kinds of things that you have uh, telling your story. I think, you think sometimes people they'll hold back from telling their story. Like you were pretty brave because they're afraid that someone's going to react in a strange right. way. Right, but you and, know that's something you learn. You learn the answers that you give. Like they all ask, "How many children do you have?" and like that. That I mean, you're you're blindsided in the beginning by some of these questions and things that people say. But you just have to, you, you go one foot in front of the other and try to learn those things and learn the responses, learning that making a decision makes you stronger. I mean, a lot of people put off everything. Like, I don't even want to, what lipstick I'm going to wear today. You know, they don't want to put clothes that match. They, you know, they don't, they, they can't do anything until they realize that making a decision makes them stronger. And like one gal said, I just wear black all the time. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I like color. And she said, no, I don't wear it for that. She said, I, I, I don't have to think. I just put it on, you know. Right. So all, all of these. Yeah. Of course, there's some people who aren't talkers. And particularly we have men tell us on the show that, you know, that they they like to listen to the show, but they don't right. want to get out there and talk about it. So um, I think groups for them are great, don't you, for oh, people who don't want to talk? Definitely. The support group uh Right in front of your eyes, you see people change. 
They come in, you know, absolutely fragile and falling apart. And by the time they're leaving, the first meeting, they're holding somebody's hand or just smiling uh, just to see that reaction. Because people say to me, how can you be doing this for 20 years? You know, aren't you burnt out? But I said, you're looking at one side of it. I'm looking at the difference right. in the person. Yeah, and this is about hope. Yeah. And I'm talking about it now after, what, 21 years? 20, 20 years on the nose. Yeah, and mm-hmm. 23 for us. This is about hope and life. It's not about death, really. Right. But just seeing that, that difference that you can make and, uh, you know, learning to write, to, to journal. No, no one was out there 20 years ago telling me to journal. I wish that I had a book from those early days. I don't have a clue. Because I didn't write it down at that time. Yeah. Did you talk a little bit about loving listeners? Oh, loving listeners. What will we do without loving listeners? And, you know, the hard part about that is, and I think something we learn, that they're not the people that you expect them to be. Right. Some of your best friends can't even talk yeah. about it. That, that is the hardest part when you're hoping, you know, it's your brother or your sister or your aunt, uncle, whatever it is, that they're going to be there for you. Uh, whether they're crippled from the loss also or they can't handle death, uh, whatever it is, it's a very tough situation. And so basically other people walk into our lives, people we might not have ever even known right. before. new friends. They become saviors to us. And uh, I say, you know, there can be a person in our life for a reason or a season. And just be grateful for that because... I like that reason or a season. Yeah, now, what about our folks out there whose friends have let them down? Um, they have to realize that if there is someone that walks into their life, they, they might be rewriting their address book, but there, as long as there's someone there, someone that can listen and to um, go, let them talk about their story and tell it a hundred times and that can give them feedback and ask questions and share the memories and look at the pictures, they just need someone that can they can bounce things off of, someone that can just sit there and be peaceful while they're meditating. Yeah, so, some of our siblings tell us that uh, they're really disappointed in their friends. Some, well, They've I really moved through. It's, yeah. it's very hard. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's a biggie because we, we're, it's part of the anger that's part of grief, uh, it's part of the process, all the different things that happen. And, you know, on top of that, the number one complaint that we hear are the insensitive remarks that people make. Uh, you know, you're going to have another child or maybe that child wasn't so good and aren't you glad, you know, is out of his misery now. And people don't want to hear that. You know, the God, it's God's will or God has a new angel. And this is the number one complaint of uh, bereaved people uh, that uh, they're hurt terribly uh, by insensitive remarks. Mm-hmm. So when I was at church at Easter time and the priest was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, that's the perfect prayer. So I came back to the group and I said, when someone says something to you that really hurts, just say to yourself, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Assholes, amen. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the whole group was laughing like they could handle it. They weren't the victims anymore. They were really like laughing at the people that said it because it was like, how could you be so stupid to say that? Right. It turned that awful vulnerability around and made them realize that the other person was ignorant. Okay, and well, that, give us that poem again for okay, our people fa- out there. Okay, Father, for, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. Assholes, amen. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you. It's a very popular prayer, and it gets the most applause at any speech that <laughs> Would you just talk quickly about if if people really need therapy? Okay. Um, some people call and they say, you know, can I come to your group or can I go to a counselor? And I say, you can do both. 
And sometimes um, having that gentle help of a counselor, you know, the one-to-one, is a wonderful way to open up ideas, how to cope. And then when you come back to the group, uh, you listen to some of the other ways that people have, and then it opens some more doors for you. I think it's a great combination. And some people are afraid to, um, you know, go to a counselor thinking they're going to be labeled like I can't make it or whatever like that. But basically they're there to help and they give wonderful, you know, um, comfort to the, to the people. So I think if you're saying three or four months out and you still can't get out of bed or whatever, you may need to do more. Right, except that we all have different timetables and there right. are people that take six months to get off the couch. One lady right. sees me and she says, you're the gal that got me off the couch. Right. So sometimes just finding the right um, icebreaker, whatever it is, you know, something that touches them, whether it's giving them a book, reading a magazine, telling them that there is a counselor. Some of them don't know where to turn. And see, that's what I do in my diocese. People will call and say, you know, where can I go for help or what group will be there for me? Now, can people email you? Yes, we have email. And wh- how would they email you? Okay, it's Elaine Stillwell, my name, E-L-A-I-N-E-S-T-I-L-L-W-E-L-L, at WorldNet. Dot att dot net. Great. Fortunately, it's a long one, but I can't change it because so many people have it. People can email us if they if they okay. can't find uh, where you are. Plus, we'll have your book on our site, Good. and it's a wonderful book. I'd highly recommend that you get it. And it covers so many areas. But I want to say one thing really quickly yes. that I loved in your book. How do they pay for therapy? I loved it where you said, "Tell people to throw in money." I. I, I missed that. Uh, you, where you say how to pay for therapy? Oh. You um, suggested that maybe you can ask your friends for some ask money. Ask your friends for some money for therapy. Well. Um, or family. Okay. That can help, too. And yeah. I, in my book, I also tell you the value of having a pet for therapy. Oh, yes. I, I forgot about that. that. I wanted to mention that because yeah. I oh. we got a dog and it was really I couldn't wonderful. say enough about that. The gentle presence of that little animal just sitting there looking at you with those big brown eyes. And it's the presence. You just need somebody there. You don't need someone that's talking and someone that kind of can and feel your positive, pain. Some positive Great. energy. Dogs are so positive. Definitely. And walking them gets you out of the house, makes you see some of the scenery out there. And brings people towards you because they want to talk about your dogs. Definitely. And yeah. one, one gal said just walking around the block seeing the changes in nature, uh, you know, helped. And another one said... She had a big piece of paper, like, what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And she couldn't write anything down because it was too big a goal. And she said she got it down to seasons, like, what am I doing for the fall? Right. And she said, I'm not up to winter yet. Right. So you have to give yourself, you know, realistic goals. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Elaine, it's time to close our show. Give oh. yourself realistic goals. Yes. Get Elaine's book, and she's got wonderful ideas. Oh, thank so, you. Um, was, and, uh, so please get that book, and uh, good luck to you folks out there who are grieving. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.